Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World is brought to you by the StarQuest Production Network and is made possible by our many generous patrons. If you'd like to support the podcast, please visit sqpn.com slash give. Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World is also brought to you in part through the generous support of Aaron Ferguson Electric and Automation, making connections for life for your automation and smart home needs in North and Central Florida at aaronv.com. Previously on Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World. We're talking about remote viewing and the U.S. government's psychic spying program, Stargate. The government wanted to find out if psychic powers really exist and, if they do, whether they could be used to help our intelligence agencies like the CIA. The psychic power that seemed most promising was known as remote viewing. The intelligence agencies were so intrigued that they established a secret project known as Stargate. The scientists were working with psychics. Who was the first one that they brought into their studies? His name was Ingo Swan. Swan was the single most important psychic because he was responsible for key developments in the study of remote viewing. In fact, even though the scientists worked with a number of different psychics, we're going to keep the focus on Swan because he's the main connecting thread. At the commencement of the experiment, a disinterested third party would randomly select an envelope. Swan would be given the name of the city thus selected and then would provide his impressions of the current weather there. Swan correctly got the fact that Tucson was having very unusual weather. And Swan was able to do this successfully in a repeated fashion. Ingo suggested the term remote viewing and a new discipline, a new research program, and ultimately, a new era in parapsychology was launched. So they decided to take the experiments to the next level, and they asked the CIA to send them some coordinates. He then sketched out a fairly detailed map of his impressions of where the various elements he had perceived were located. And what was the CIA's response? They began an investigation of what was apparently a breach of security. It was all correct. It was this set of protocols that Swan developed and then trained the government's psychic spies in. So there was a real Stargate project. You're listening to episode 103 of Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World, where we look at mysteries from the twin perspectives of faith and reason. In this episode, we're talking about what the evidence has to say about remote viewing. I'm Dom Bettinelli, and joining me today is Jimmy Aiken. Hi, Jimmy. Howdy, Dom. In the 1970s, a pair of physicists began investigating psychic phenomena on behalf of the government, and their experiments focused on a technique known as remote viewing that had been developed by the psychic Ingo Swan. Remote viewing is supposed to allow a person to pick up impressions of or view remote locations like military bases that were behind the Iron Curtain. Their experiments seemed to indicate that remote viewing had a great deal of promise, and so the government set up a psychic spying program called Stargate. Swan developed a six-stage process to help the government's remote viewers to pick up on the impressions, and this was the main method used in the Stargate program. So what does the evidence say about remote viewing? Could a psychic power like this really exist? And if it did, how would it be viewed from the faith perspective? That's what we'll be talking about on this episode of Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World. So, Jimmy, last week in episode 102, we talked about the, this history of remote viewing and the experiments that led up to the beginning of the Stargate program. We'll cover the history of that program itself in a future episode. But this time, we're going to look at the theories about remote viewing from the faith and reason perspectives. So before we begin, what should listeners be aware of? One of the things they should be aware of is we've done a whole previous episode on the concepts of religion, magic, psychic phenomena, and science. Originally, these concepts were bundled together, but they gradually came to be distinguished. And for information about that, people should go back and listen to episode 79. One of the key takeaways from that episode, which is relevant here, is what psychic powers are supposed to be. The term is often used to refer to poorly understood but natural mental abilities that people are reported to have, things like telekinesis, telepathy, or remote viewing. If these things exist, the claim is that they're based on human nature, either 
in the human body or the human soul or a combination of the two. Psychic abilities thus don't require, theoretically, the intervention of supernatural beings like God or angels or demons because they're part of human nature, or at least that's the claim. Another thing that people should be aware of is that remote viewing experiments done leading up to the Stargate project had some really impressive results. Go back and listen to last week's episode for a description of some of those successes or hits. However, one of the things that we also pointed out was that there were also significant failures or misses with remote viewing. As a result, the claim is not that remote viewing is always right. If it exists, it's supposed to be a weak but natural ability. It's supposed to be natural because it's based in human nature, but it's also weak because it doesn't consistently return good results. In that way, it's supposed to be kind of like the human sense of smell. We genuinely do have a natural ability to detect smells, but it's weak and often unreliable. Nothing like the super accurate sense of smell that dogs have, for example. One of the key challenges that the government's remote viewers had was distinguishing between when they were getting authentic impressions about distant locations and what they were like and when they were getting bad information. In signal processing, the genuine information that you're interested in is called the signal, and anything that interferes with that signal is called noise. So borrowing this terminology, remote viewers referred to genuine impressions of a remote site as the signal that they were interested in, and all of the bad impressions were referred to as noise. To help distinguish the signal from the noise, Ingo Swan developed a six-stage process that he used to train the government psychic spies. One of the key features of this process was letting the remote viewers get basic sensory impressions of the target before they tried to analyze them. This was because if they didn't do that, they found that their own imaginations would get in the way. They would start analyzing the impressions and creating what Ingo called analytical overlay or AOL. One example that we looked at in the last episode was when Ingo was asked to remotely view the weather in Tucson, Arizona, and the first thing that came to his mind was the image of a hot, dry desert, because he knew that's what Tucson normally is like. It was only after he set this image aside that he was able to get an impression of what the actual weather in Tucson was like, which was very cold and raining hard. So by using Swan's six-stage process, viewers could focus on their initial sensory impressions of a site before they started to analyze them. Another innovation that Ingo introduced was keeping the remote viewer blind to what the target was, meaning he didn't know what he was being asked to view. This also helped him avoid having his imagination interfere with his perceptions of the target. The way Ingo did this was by being given only the map coordinates to where the target was located. But later remote viewers wanted to go even further and were given meaningless strings of letters and numbers so they couldn't rely on their knowledge of maps. For example, a viewer might be told to go to a random string like XYZ123 and describe what's there. Neither the viewer nor the monitor guiding him through the session knew where XYZ123 was supposed to be. Only the client who commissioned the session knew what the target was supposed to be. That way, the remote viewing session was double blind, with neither the viewer nor the monitor knowing what they were supposed to be looking at. And notice that this is the opposite of what many psychics want. They want to know as much as possible about what their target is, which is a sign that they may be cheating and just making educated guesses based on their background knowledge of the target. But remote viewers wanted to know as little as possible, and yet they often got surprising results. So, Jimmy, what theories are there about remote viewing? From the reason perspective, there are two basic theories. First, it's a genuine phenomenon. Second, it's not a genuine phenomenon. Also, if it turns out that it is genuine, then from the faith perspective, we need to ask how we can explain it from a Christian point of view. And in light of that answer, we would need to address whether it's something that it might be morally legitimate to use. Okay, so what can we say about remote viewing from the reason perspective? How can we evaluate whether it's a real phenomenon or not? 
I'd like to start by peeling away several objections that I think are misguided and then look at the core of the evidence. The objections include uh, claims that we shouldn't think it's a real phenomenon because, first, we can't explain it by the known laws of physics. Second, because a good bit of what comes back is inaccurate. Third, because we'd be able to get rich by gambling or playing the stock market if it were real. And fourth, because some remote viewers have made false predictions or made crazy sounding claims about UFOs and the Loch Ness Monster and other subjects. All right. So let's look at each of these objections. What about the objection that we cannot explain remote viewing by the known laws of physics? Well, that appears to be true. The known laws of physics don't explain it. It does not appear to be an electromagnetic phenomenon, for example. You know, you can do it even if you're in a Faraday cage. However, I don't think that this is a good objection because scientists, or at least good scientists, don't refuse to believe in something just because we don't have an explanation for it. As we covered back in episode 83 on the case of the missing universe, when Isaac Newton first proposed the law of gravity in the 1600s, he got serious pushback. People back then had no idea how gravity worked, and it even conflicted with the laws of physics as they were understood in his day. According to Aristotelian physics, one object can't have an influence on another unless there's a physical medium connecting the two. But gravity was supposed to work even across a vacuum. Newton claimed that one object's mass could influence another object by spooky action at a distance, and so people accused him of introducing an occult force into nature and thus proposing some kind of natural magic. But the fact was, Newton's equations did accurately describe what we observe, and because his proposed law of gravity fit the observed facts, people eventually came to accept it. In fact, gravity is now considered to be one of the laws of nature, even though we still have a very poor understanding of what makes it work. The fact it's supported by observation, that it predicts the motions of objects with an accuracy much better than random chance, is enough. And in the same way, if it turned out that remote viewing fits the observations, if it predicts things significantly better than random chance, then that would tell us we have a real phenomenon on our hands, even if we can't explain how it works. What about the objection that a good bit of what remote viewers come up with is inaccurate? Again, it's true. There is a good bit of noise and not as much signal as the viewers would like. Analytical overlay is also a problem, even, even though they try to control it. But just because something isn't as reliable as we'd like doesn't mean it isn't real. Other senses that humans have also are very poorly developed, certainly compared to other species. For example, our sense of smell is positively terrible compared to those possessed by some species. I mean, yes, we can pick up the smell of another human being from sweaty clothes that they're wearing if we're holding the clothes right up to our nose, but we can't track them across distances the way dogs can. In fact, a good bloodhound... Uh, can track the scent of a human that's 300 hours old, you know, more than 12 days. And he can follow that scent up to 130 miles or 200 kilometers. We also can detect the smell of a dead body if it's right in front of us. But we can't detect a dead body that's buried underground or years later, the way cadaver dogs that are used by law enforcement can. Similarly, our sense of taste, which is partially based on smell, is very imprecise. Yes, people can taste the difference between things like wine and whiskey, but when making subtler distinctions, their perceptions are all over the map, and studies have shown that they're wildly inaccurate. Here's how physicist Leonard Mladnow describes that in his book on mathematics, The Drunkard's Walk, How Randomness Rules Our Lives. In the wine tastings that I've attended over the years, I've noticed that if the bearded fellow to my left mutters a great nose, the wine smells good. Others certainly might chime in their agreement. But if you make your notes independently and without discussion, you often find that the bearded fellow wrote great nose, the guy with the shaved head scribbled no nose, and the blonde woman with the perm wrote interesting nose with hints of parsley and freshly tanned leather. The reason for this is that... 
The perceived taste of wine arises from the effects of a stew of between 600 and 800 volatile organic compounds on both the tongue and nose. That's a problem, given that the studies have shown that even flavor-trained professionals can rarely reliably identify more than three or four components in a mixture. Expectations also can affect your perception of taste. In a 2008 study, a group of volunteers was asked to rate five wines, including a bottle labeled $90 higher than another bottle labeled $10, even though the sneaky researchers had filled both bottles with the same wine. What's more, this test was conducted while the subjects were having their brains imaged in a magnetic resonance scanner. These scans showed that the area of the brain thought to encode our experience of pleasure was truly more active when the subjects drank the wine they believed was more expensive. But before you judge the enophiles, consider this. When a researcher asked 30 cola drinkers whether they preferred Coke or Pepsi, and then asked them to test their preference by tasting both brands side by side, 21 of the 30 reported that the taste test confirmed their choice, even though this sneaky researcher had put Coke in the Pepsi bottle and vice versa. Wine tasters are also often fooled by the flip side of the expectancy bias, a lack of context. Holding a chunk of horseradish under your nostril, you'd probably not mistake it for a clove of garlic. Nor would you mistake a clove of garlic for, say, the inside of your sneaker. But if you sniff clear liquid scents, all bets are off. In the absence of context, there's a good chance you'd mix the scents up. At least that's what happened when two researchers presented experts with a series of 16 random odors, the experts misidentified about one out of every four scents. So our senses of smell and taste are really poorly developed, even if you're an expert who's been trained in sniffing out things. They report a lot of erroneous results, and they can be affected by the ideas we have about what we're smelling or tasting based on the context in which we encounter them, which is the sensory equivalent of analytical overlay. I thus don't think the fact that remote viewing's results are often wrong is a good argument that it can't be a real phenomenon. It could turn out that we have a weak and often misled ability to remote view, just like we have weak and often misled abilities to smell and taste. However, unreliable smell and taste are Basic tests involving them will produce results that are better than random chance. We really do have these senses. The question is whether the ability to remote view produces results that are better than random chance, indicating we have that as a sense as well. What about the objection that if remote viewing were real, people would be able to get rich gambling or playing the stock market? Well, there are a number of potential problems with this. One of them is it's going to depend on how difficult it is to extract the signal from the noise. If you've got to do lots of error correction and lots of trials to get good, reliable signal, it may not be worth your while. But actually, there have been people who have used remote viewing to make money, both gambling and playing the stock market. Uh, and that includes Hal Putoff, one of the initial scientists doing the investigations. In his book, Jim Schnabel reports, Since the mid and late 1970s, Putoff had been using remote viewing on jaunts to Las Vegas. He and his wife and friends would sit in their hotel room before going down to the casino. The plan was that they would go into the casino at a certain time, would walk over to one of the roulette wheels, and would start to bet immediately after the roulette ball landed on one of the green double-zero markers. Up in the room beforehand, they would try to guess, precognitively, on the results of a stretch of, say, 10 roulette spins following the double-zero, using a combined result error-correcting technique like the one parapsychology researcher Charles Tart had developed. When Putoff was satisfied that their guesses had converged on a particular sequence of blacks and reds, the party would go down to the casino wait for the double zero signal, and place their bets. On many of these occasions, he said later, he and his friends won back the cost of their trip and then some. And winning back the cost of your trip to Las Vegas and then some is improbable, given the fact that the odds are always stacked in favor of the house, which is how casinos make money. Putoff also used the technique to make money on the stock market. Towards the mid-1980s, Putoff and his wife Adrian became involved with the founding of a new private school in the Menlo Park, California area. A key investor backed out at the last minute, and the board was faced with a $25,000 shortfall, 
several weeks before the school year began. With nothing else left to do but fold the school and send teachers and students elsewhere, Putov and his wife soon assembled a small team of board members and quickly trained them in associative remote viewing. On each day of Silver Futures trading, they tried to view precognitively an unspecified object they would be shown the following day. Putov, running the operation, secretly selected two objects, say a hat and a bicycle, one of which signified market up, the other market down. If the responses from the viewers were reasonably unambiguous on any given day, Putov would direct his broker to make a trade, buying or selling as appropriate. After a month, these first-time remote viewers had made the $25,000 they needed. The school was saved. So people have used remote viewing to make money, both gambling and by the stock market. But because you have to go to great lengths to filter out the noise in order to get the signal, this isn't an easy process. It requires a good bit of effort for uncertain results. And people like Putoff haven't chosen it to use as their principal means of earning a living. What would happen if someone tried to do that so far has not been tested, at least so far as I know. Mm. <laughs> I'm just imagining somebody's out there <laughs> making <Yeah>. a living <laughs> that way. <laughs> so what about the objection that some remote viewers have made false predictions or crazy claims about UFOs, Loch Ness Monster, or other fringe subjects? Well, it's certainly true that remote viewers have made false predictions. That's guaranteed by the procedure's noise-to-signal ratio being so high. But once again, the question is whether the results they produce are better than random chance. It's also true that some remote viewers have made crazy-sounding claims. But then, you know, some psychics have made crazy-sounding claims, and that doesn't mean you don't study, is this real? For example, to give an example of some crazy remote viewing claims, one of the remote viewers associated with the Stargate program, and actually he wasn't per se a remote viewer, he was technically a monitor, but we'll talk about that more in our Stargate episode. One of them was a guy named Major Ed Dames, and he became famous in later years going on the Art Bell show, and he claimed, among other things, that the Loch Ness Monster is the ghost of a dinosaur. Mm -hmm. Ed Dames has a particular fascination with these bizarre fringe subjects, which his fellow remote viewers refer to as anomaly targets. Frankly, other remote viewers involved in the program have been somewhat embarrassed by Dames. In fact, they were so annoyed with him at one point during the program because of his fascination with anomaly targets that they once played a remote viewing prank on him. And it's really hilarious, and we'll describe it in our upcoming episode on the Stargate Project itself. The point for now, though, is that even the military's professional remote viewers have been disappointed by Dames's crazy claims, and those of others, you know, other people have made crazy claims, who are kind of bringing disrepute on the practice. The real question, again, though, is not whether the technique sometimes produces implausible or inaccurate claims. It's whether it produces results that are better than random chance. Are there reasons to suspect that the results on anomaly targets might be less accurate than the real ones? Potentially, and for at least three reasons. The first is that it's impossible to get feedback on anomaly targets. To keep things simple, we haven't really talked about feedback thus far, but it's considered very important for remote viewers to get feedback, letting them know how accurate their impressions of the target were. This is especially important when they're being trained in the technique, because it's supposed to help them distinguish, develop a feel for which impressions are the signal and which might be the noise. For example, if you start getting impressions of something like the Eiffel Tower, but it's mixed up with other impressions, it helps to be eventually told, oh, it was the Eiffel Tower that you were viewing. So you get a sense of what it feels like when you're getting a genuine impression. We need feedback when developing any skill. You know, if you're learning to play the violin, you need to hear the notes that you're playing so that you know whether you're off key or not. If during all of your training, you wore noise canceling headphones so you couldn't get audio feedback, you'd become a terrible violin player. In the same way, remote viewers are supposed to need feedback after the fact to help them learn which impressions they should have trusted and which they should have ignored. But there's a debate about whether they continue to need feedback after they're trained. 
Some think that once you're trained, you don't need ongoing feedback, and if you don't get it, it won't hurt your accuracy. But others think that you do continue to need feedback. However, if you've been tasked with remote viewing, say, an alien moon base on the dark side of the moon, there's no way to get feedback on that. Similarly, if you're asked to remote view the year 3000, or Bigfoot, or the Loch Ness Monster, or any other anomaly target, you can't get feedback to find out if you were right. Consequently, I've heard some remote viewers express skepticism about anomaly targets and say that they really aren't interested in them because there's no way to get feedback. Why would a remote viewer who has completed his training continue to need feedback? Ongoing feedback could be integral to the process in a number of ways. For example, it's been suggested that part of what remote viewing involves is seeing the feedback itself precognitively. So if you're assigned to view the Eiffel Tower, at least part of what you're doing may be precognitively viewing the moment when they show you the picture of the target and it's the Eiffel Tower. And then that may help you connect to the tower in some other way. But if you never get that feedback, you don't have that help. So all you would get would be noise and no signal. Another way that feedback could be integral is that remote viewing might be a skill that requires ongoing training, like weightlifting. If you don't get feedback to keep your RV muscles in tone, they may degrade at, with time and you might start to get less accurate. You know, just like if you don't regularly lift the weights, you get flabby muscles, you can't lift as much. In the same way, if you don't get regular feedback as a remote viewer, you might get flabby and off target with your remote viewing muscles. You mentioned that there were at least three reasons why we might want to be skeptical of the results on anomaly targets. And the first was the fact it's not possible to get feedback. What's the second reason? It may not be possible to train for them. This is related to the fact that it's impossible to get feedback. Consider a parallel, again, from weightlifting. If you want to train so that you can lift a 50-pound weight, that's something you can do. But just because you've learned to lift a 50-pound weight doesn't mean you're also trained to lift a 500-pound weight. You need to train separately if you want to do that. And maybe remote viewing works the same way. Remote viewing the Eiffel Tower over in France might be like lifting 50 pounds. But remote viewing really distant targets like the alien moon base on the dark side of the moon might be like lifting 500 pounds. Uh, since the Eiffel Tower is here on Earth, you can get feedback on it as you train your RV muscles to do things on an international scale, but you can't get feedback to train your RV muscles to work on an interplanetary scale, at least not nearly as easily. As a result, you might have a much higher amount of noise and a much lower amount of signal when trying to view something off-planet. Similarly, trying to predict the stock market you know, what it's going to do tomorrow is something you can get feedback on, but trying to predict what the stock market will do a thousand years from now may be a whole nother ballgame, and there's no way to get feedback on that. So there may simply be limits to what remote viewing can do. Either the human capacity to remote view some anomaly targets might not exist, just like no human being can lift, lift 5,000 pounds, or even if you can train in principle to do some of these far out targets, it might be impossible to properly train the viewers because you can't give them feedback so they never can develop their muscles to go after those type of targets. All right. And then what's the third reason to be skeptical of anomaly targets? Some of the targets may not exist. For example, suppose you're tasked with viewing the Loch Ness Monster and it turns out that the Loch Ness Monster doesn't exist. You know, what, what would happen then? One possibility is that since the target is non-existent, there is no signal. So all you get is noise. As a result, everything you'd come up with would be junk, like the idea it's a ghost of a dinosaur. Presumably is. Right. Would that be solved if, as is common remote viewing practice, the viewer were kept blind to what the target is? Wouldn't he just come back and say, there's nothing here, or I can't lock onto the target? You might think so, but the matter isn't as clear as that. And in theory, this could be tested, but I haven't been able to find evidence of a test on this question of what would happen if you deliberately assigned remote viewers to things you know do not exist. But even if it doesn't exist, I can imagine ways that 
the process would result in junk. We've mentioned that one of the problems that the government's remote viewers faced was analytical overlay or AOL. You know, their own minds would produce images, noise when they were trying to view a target. But there's another kind of overlay that they also reported having to deal with, and they called it telepathic overlay. That is, they would find their own impressions of a target colored by what other people were thinking about it. For example, this could include the person monitoring them as they did their session. If the monitor wasn't blind to the target, if he knew what it was, then it was reported that his thoughts could interfere with the viewer's impressions. This is one of the things motivating double-blind tests where neither the viewer nor the monitor knew what the target was. And there would seem to be some evidence that if any of this turned out to be real, remote viewing would involve telepathy on some level. This is suggested by the fact that you could be given a random string of letters and numbers to represent the target. Suppose that you're a remote viewer and your client wants you to view the Eiffel Tower, but both you and your monitor are blind to that fact. So your monitor tells you, go to XYZ123 and tell me what you see, and you start getting impressions of the Eiffel Tower. How did you do that? XYZ123 is just a random string of letters and numbers, so how did it come to mean the Eiffel Tower? Neither you nor the monitor knows that that's what you're supposed to be looking at. Only the client knows. So one logical answer would be that you're somehow subconsciously picking up on the fact that this is what the client wants you to view, and that would seem to be telepathy. Now, suppose your client wants you to view the Loch Ness Monster, but there isn't one. In this case, you would subconsciously pick up on the fact that your client wants to hear about the Loch Ness Monster, and so you start getting impressions of the target that mirror the ideas that the client has about the Loch Ness Monster, or your own subconscious starts manufacturing impressions and ideas about what the Loch Ness Monster would be like if it existed. And so through a combination of telepathic overlay and analytical overlay and good old noise, you could come up with junk results that nevertheless fit the client's request to hear about the Loch Ness Monster. And there is no way to error correct those because it's impossible to get feedback without draining Loch Ness. Or even then, if it turns out to be the ghost of a dinosaur, draining Loch Ness won't help. Right. If we have reason to be suspicious of anomaly targets, what about regular ones? What does the evidence say about whether any of this works at all? The matter is controversial, and there are people on both sides of the question. It's fair to say that the existence of remote viewing is not considered established by mainstream science. But it's also fair to say that mainstream science has an anti-paranormal, anti-supernatural bias. And it's fair to say that most mainstream scientists don't even look at the evidence regarding it paranormal things. They know their own field. They don't look at evidence in other fields. The real question is what the evidence says, and specifically whether remote viewing can produce results that are significantly better than what random chance would. There's no way in this already long podcast that we can survey all of the studies that have been done, so we'll focus on one particular and often quoted study. In June of 1995, the CIA commissioned a review of remote viewing data. The experts they asked to evaluate it only had a couple of months to work, and they were only able to review a small portion of the files of government-sponsored research that had been conducted at, by the contractor's SRI, where Putoff and Targ worked, and the other one we mentioned, SAIC. Nevertheless, they produced a paper called An Evaluation of Remote Viewing, Research and Applications, which was published by the Federation of American Scientists. The two lead experts were Dr. Jessica Utz and Dr. Raymond Hyman. Here's how the paper describes them. To evaluate the research program, a blue ribbon panel was assembled. The panel included two noted experts in the area of parapsychology. Dr. Jessica Utz, a professor of statistics at the University of California, Davis, and Dr. Raymond Hyman, a professor of psychology at the University of Oregon. In addition to their extensive credentials, they were selected to represent both sides of the paranormal controversy. 
Dr. Utz has published articles that view paranormal interpretations positively, while Dr. Hyman was selected to represent a more skeptical position. Both, however, are viewed as fair and open-minded scientists. After completing their review of the files that they were able to look at in the allotted time period, Jessica Utz concluded, Using the standards applied to any other area of science, it is concluded that psychic functioning has been well established. The statistical results of the studies examined are far beyond what is expected by chance. Arguments that these results could be due to methodological flaws in the experiments are soundly refuted. Effects of similar magnitude to those found in government-sponsored research at SRI and SAIC have been replicated at a number of laboratories across the world. Such consistency cannot be readily explained by claims of flaws or fraud. By contrast, Ray Hyman concluded, Obviously, I do not believe that the contemporary findings of parapsychology, including those from the SRI-SAIC program, justify concluding that anomalous mental phenomena have been proven. Professor Utz and some parapsychologists believe otherwise. I admit that the latest findings should make them optimistic. The case for psychic functioning seems better than it ever has been. The contemporary findings, along with the output of the SRI-SAIC program, do seem to indicate that something beyond odd statistical hiccups is taking place. I also have to admit that I do not have a ready explanation for these observed effects. Inexplicable statistical departures from chance, however, are a far cry from compelling evidence for anomalous cognition. This is a significant admission, and later Hyman goes on to say, Despite better controls and careful use of statistical inference, the investigators seem to be getting significant results that do not appear to derive from the more obvious flaws of previous research. I have argued that this does not justify concluding that anomalous cognition has been demonstrated. However, it does suggest that it might be worthwhile to allocate some resources towards seeing whether these findings can be independently replicated. If so, then it will be time to reassess if it is worth pursuing the task of determining if these effects do indeed reflect the operation of anomalous cognition. So let's review these two experts and what they've said. Dr. Jessica Utz has a PhD in statistics. She has also served as the president of the American Statistical Association. So she's well qualified to make an assessment of the statistics involved and whether the SRI and SAIC remote viewing results are significantly above chance. Her conclusion was that using the standards applied in any other area of science, it is concluded that psychic functioning has been well established. The statistical results of the studies examined are far above what is expected by chance. Dr. Raymond Hyman has a doctorate in psychology. He's also one of the founders of the modern skeptical movement. He was a founder of the Committee for the Scientific Investigation of Claims of the Paranormal, or PSYCHOP, which is a debunking organization. Today, that organization is known as the Committee for Skeptical Inquiry, or CSI, and it's one of the premier organizations devoted to debunking claims of the paranormal. Despite that, Hyman concluded that the case for psychic functioning seems better than it ever has been. The contemporary findings do seem to indicate something beyond odd statistical hiccups is taking place. I also have to admit I do not have a ready explanation for the observed effects. He went on to conclude that although he was not personally convinced, it could be worth doing further research and if the results continue to hold up, that it could warrant reassessing whether psychic functioning is real. So on the question of whether the results of the RV experiments were above chance, both experts said yes. And on the question of whether this above chance results were the product of psychic abilities, one said yes, and the other said he wasn't convinced, but he could change his mind based on future research. Okay, so we'd like to take a moment now to thank our patrons who make this show possible, including Kathy L., Linda N., Janet M., Sam E., and Eric E. Their generous donations at sqpn.com give make it possible for us to continue Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World and all the shows at StarQuest. You can join them by visiting sqpn.com slash give. 
Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World is also brought to you in part through the generous support of Aaron Ferguson Electric and Automation, making connections for life for your automation and smart home needs in North and Central Florida at AaronV.com. Okay, so that's the reason perspective. What can we say about remote viewing from the faith perspective? First, we should discuss what the catechism has to say about clairvoyance. For a fuller discussion, go back and listen to episode 79 on religion, magic, psychic phenomena, and science, where we talked about this passage from the catechism in detail. As it's classically understood, clairvoyance is the viewing of distant things, and that sounds very much like remote viewing. If you look at paragraph 2116 of the catechism, it lists and forbids three types of divination or learning about the future by supernatural means. The first form of divination was contacting demons. The second was conjuring up the dead. And the third was by practices falsely supposed to unveil the future. And this is where it lists clairvoyance in the English translation. But there's a problem with the translation. The catechism was originally written in French. And in that language, the word used here is voyance, which means fortune telling from what I've been able to determine. This also fits the context, which is about telling the future, not looking at things in the present in distant locations. The same is indicated by the authoritative Latin text, which reads previsionis. In context, prevision or previsionis means seeing the future through occult or supernatural means. The English translators would have rendered this word better if they'd said precognition. Clairvoyance doesn't accurately convey what's being discussed, so I don't think the catechism is clearly condemning remote viewing. It's condemning trying to learn about the future through supernatural means, but they're not envisioning a natural means of remote viewing and whether that might work. In fact, I doubt the authors of the catechism had even heard of remote viewing or the SRI-SAIC experiments. I mean, the Stargate program was still classified when they were drafting the catechism in the years between 1985 and 1992. What they're condemning is traditional fortune-telling, which is indeed a practice falsely supposed to unveil the future by supernatural means. So what if it turned out that remote viewing was a natural ability? That would be more reason to see the catechism as not making a statement about it one way or the other, because it's dealing with supernatural phenomena. But that's a question we do need to ask ourselves. If remote viewing exists, is it a natural ability, something rooted in human nature, or does it involve supernatural beings besides humans? If it's supernatural, it does not seem to be any form of private revelation. Private revelation is a gift that God sometimes gives people, perhaps through the agency of angels, but it doesn't work at will the way remote viewing is reported to work. So that means if it's supernatural and it's not coming from God or his angels, it would be coming from demons. Might it be coming from demons? Well, we always have to be careful when making claims about demons. It is superstitious if you dismiss everything you don't understand as demonic. It also harms the gospel because it makes Christians look like a bunch of superstitious buffoons if they attribute everything they don't understand to demons. And it's factually inaccurate because it gives the devil too much credit. When temptations arise in the world, they're because of the world, the flesh, and the devil, and the devil is only one of those three sources. So the standard procedure that we need to apply when looking at a mystery is Occam's razor. Don't make the explanation more complicated than it, than it needs to be by proposing entities we don't have evidence for in a particular case. In other words, take the phenomenon at face value until you have reason to take it some other way. Well, in this case, people are trying to exercise an innate human ability, and they're getting weak sensory impressions. They're not hearing voices from disembodied spirits telling them the information. So at least on the surface, that looks like a natural ability, not trans-channeling spirits or demons. My starting position or presumption thus would be that if remote viewing exists, it should be understood as a weak but natural human ability. However, that starting presumption could be overcome by evidence, because it is possible 
that demons could feed remote viewers accurate information on some things in order to lead them to, into false ideas about God or into sin. But we can't simply assume that to be the case. We need evidence for it. And we need to evaluate that evidence carefully and not simply leap to the conclusion we'd like, whether it's demons or not demons. That goes beyond what we can do on today's show. But what would the results be if it turned out that remote viewing is a real but natural ability? St. Thomas Aquinas would say that in that case, you can use it. Recently, I was doing a study of what St. Thomas Aquinas has to say about the occult, and he was very clear on the fact that if something involves a purely natural effect, you can use it, at least in principle. I was also surprised to discover that St. Thomas was open to the idea that humans have what we today would call natural psychic abilities including versions of telekinesis and precognition. We'll be talking about that more in an upcoming episode on Aquinas and the Occult. But for now, if it turned out that remote viewing was both real and natural, Aquinas would say it could be used in principle. Okay, so, so much more we could cover, but we've already covered a lot of ground here. So, Jimmy, can you give me your bottom line here? I think remote viewing is a very intriguing phenomenon. The evidence for it being real is significant enough that you have a president of the American Statistical Association saying its results far exceed chance, and you have a skeptic like Ray Hyman acknowledging that the evidence looks promising and he could change his mind. On the other hand, if the ability is real, it's weak, and it generates a lot of noise. So you have to be careful with it and not believe everything a remote viewer says, especially when it comes to anomaly targets. At least on its face, the phenomenon presents itself as a natural one, in which case Aquinas would say you can use it, because I can't eliminate the possibility of demonic activity. So, Jimmy, would you ever try remote viewing yourself and see what results you got? Absolutely not. Uh, too many uncertainties are involved. I'll leave it to others to do the research. I may be buying a lottery ticket later. <laughs> <laughs> so, Jimmy. Just just error correct first. Yes, exactly. Control the noise. <laughs> All right. So, Jimmy, uh, what further resources can we offer to the listener? We'll have Paul Smith's book, Reading the Enemy's Mind, Annie Jacobson's book, Phenomena, Jim Schnabel's book, Remote Viewers and Leonard Mladenow's book on mathematics, The Drunkard's Walk, How Randomness Rules Our Lives. We'll also have a link to Ingo Swan's novel Starfire, which I have not read. Also, the Federation of American Scientists Remote Viewing page, the Utz-Hyman Evaluation paper, pages on remote viewing, Hal Putoff, Russell Targ, Ingo Swan, the Stargate Project, and also the government contractors SRI and SAIC. Excellent. Very good. All right. We, one of the things we love about our program is that we have lots of people who give us a great feedback. And so uh, this week for Mysterious Feedback, we're talking about the recent episode, uh, the part one of the episode on reincarnation. So uh, the first feedback comes from Justin on Facebook, who writes, I have a friend who's a Catholic in good standing, but who grew up in India and is very familiar with Hinduism. He had some objections to Jimmy's philosophical criticisms of reincarnation. He said, Quote, I believe Jimmy is incorrect when coming from the Hindu understanding of reincarnation. First, Jimmy argues that the first karmic atom must have hit or hurt someone to earn the first bad karma. But that is not true. Similarly to how Adam did not sin against another man, he sinned against God. In Hindu theology, there is a concept of original sin. It's pride against the creator himself. Karma also is generational, as in if your parents or ancestors did some really terrible things, you and your children will pay for it. So it may not even be your own sins you pay for. Even in Christianity, some sins are so grave that it brings generational curses. In the Bible, they ask Jesus, is this his sin or his ancestor's sin that he was born this way? End quote. So I appreciate what Justin's friend has to say, and I don't deny his characterization of Hindu thought, although Hindu thought is very diverse. So you'll get different theories even among different groups of Hindus. One of the things we pointed out in the episode is we're, we're not focusing on all of the variations of how reincarnation is understood in 
Eastern religions. You know, the Hindu understanding of it, for example, is different than the common Jain understanding of it. And the Buddhist understanding of it is also different. So there's just too much intellectual diversity there. And as our entry point into the discussion, we decided to focus on how it's understood here in the West. And in the West, in the New Age movement, where you have the the most people who believe in reincarnation in the West, they don't really have the idea of original sin or sinning against God being so much a thing. They view sins in a much more personalistic, interpersonal sense, but they don't really, they tend to be pantheist for one thing. And so they identify God with the world or even themselves. And consequently, they don't have the idea about there's this separate creator that we could sin against. They view karma much more in interpersonal terms. So that's why we were dealing with it from that perspective. Also, they tend not to have the idea of generational sin in the Western New Age movement. And there's even a problem with asserting it in a Christian context. When the subject comes up in John's gospel, it's the story of the man born blind, and the disciples do ask him, based on a common Jewish understanding that if someone is suffering, somebody had to sin. So they, and and it was common in the pre-Christian Jewish understanding to have generational curses. So the disciples do ask who sinned this man or his parents so that he was born blind. Jesus's answer is neither. So Jesus is not endorsing a generational curse in this case. You can show that Many Jewish people accepted the idea of generational curses, but that being a part of contemporary Christian theology is more problematic, and we'll deal with that in the future in an episode specifically devoted to curses. Interesting. Okay. Uh, Then Claire Kappenman wrote on YouTube, what if karmic Adam's sin was against no one but himself? I guess maybe folks who believe in karma don't believe you can sin except against others? No, this is kind of the flip side. You do have people who in the West who do think you can sort of sin against yourself. In fact, since they tend to be pantheists and monists who think everything is ultimately one thing anyway, bad karma would in some sense be generated against yourself as kind of an abuse of your own nature as manifested in what appears to be some other person, but is really another aspect of the undifferentiated reality that everything is. is. So you will get variations, but at least in as it's commonly presented, karma is understood as, well, I do something bad, usually meaning to somebody else, and so something bad happens to me. Okay. Anthony D. uh, wrote on YouTube, you mentioned that karma gives answers to why innocent people are suffering in this life. It's because of their past life's sins. Even though that seems kind of cold, it does make logical sense. How else can we explain suffering? It's either that or we have to say it's God's will that people suffer. It's God's will that an innocent child is born disabled in poverty and then dies a painful death with cancer. If God is a God of justice, then why would he let that happen to an innocent child? It seems to me suffering is either because of bad karma from a previous life or God is an unjust God and condemns innocent people to pain and suffering without any fault of their own. Can someone tell me the flaw in my logic? I really want to know. So one of the things we mentioned in the episode is the problem of evil. And because the episode was focused on reincarnation, we didn't have the time to go into, I mean, it was already a two-parter. We didn't have the time to go in at length to the Christian answer to the problem of evil. And we mentioned a DVD of a talk that I'd done on the subject and referred people to that. So I'd like to encourage Anthony D to go ahead and get a copy of that and watch it for a fuller discussion of how Christians would answer this. But in terms of the specific questions he asks, two points that are relevant are that we're not limited to just these two arguments, uh, that either a baby who, who suffers early in life and dies, either he's paying off karma for something he did in a past life, or God is willing his innocent suffering in some positive sense. It is, there, there are other possibilities, like God is not positively willing his suffering. He's merely allowing that suffering to take place, and he will more than make it up 
to the child in the afterlife. One of the things that is true from a Christian perspective is this life is not the end. So you're making a mistake if you view what happens in this life as all that's happening. Yes, if you looked at innocent suffering in this life and said, well, this person is suffering innocently, the end, that would reflect poorly on God's loving nature. But this life is not all there is. This life is a tiny blip in an infinite future life. And consequently, St. Paul talks about how the sufferings of this life are not even worth comparing to the great weight of glory that God has in store for us in the next life. So even if someone, even if God allowed, not positively willing, but allowed someone to suffer innocently in this life, God can vastly more than make it up to that person in the next life. All right. Great questions. Great feedback. Thank you, everyone. I, I want to say we had more feedback than that, and I wish I could go into some of the more philosophical arguments in more depth, but... You know, we have a limited amount of time we can we can <laughs> yeah. do. And we'll have more feedback on the second part of the reincarnation uh, episodes uh, coming up uh, next time. So, uh, Jimmy, uh, what do we have for mysterious headlines this week? Well, our son is quiet. Too quiet. <laughs> I've said that about and, my sons, but you don't mean like uh, my <laughs> child. <laughs> I mean the one in the sky. Yes, of course. So uh, the sun has an 11 year cycle of sunspots. It's approximately 11 years where you have this waxing and waning of the number of sunspots. When the number gets small, it's known as a solar minimum. You have the minimum number of sunspots. When it's, when it's great, it's what's known as a solar maximum. Well, we are at a solar minimum, and we've been having weak sunspot cycles lately anyway, and that's having some effects. One of the things that has been proposed is that when we hit solar minima, the, the world cools down, and that may be why we're not seeing some of the projected effects of global warming. On the other hand, it may be that the projected effects of global warming were based on the idea that we were going to have strong solar cycles, and it's really the solar cycles that are driving some of that and not as much greenhouse gases as some claim. So there's some interesting room for discussion about the connection between the temperature of the Earth and the sunspot cycles. We'll have a link to an article on solar minima and global cooling. Which is, and this particular article is largely from a global warming perspective, but it does acknowledge that when, when the sun gets quiet, the earth gets at least somewhat cooler. Also, that may, be, may not be the only problem that we encounter from solar minima. We also may encounter pandemics hmm. at solar minima. And if you're wondering why we're having a coronavirus pandemic now, it could be related to this year. It could be related to the fact that we have a solar minimum right now. And the fact our solar, our sunspot cycles have been weak in recent years could be why we've had several pandemics in recent years. This is a theory that is not just now being proposed. In fact, the article we'll have a link to is a scientific paper that goes back several years and that warns that come 2020, 2021, when we go into another minimum, we may have another pandemic. Wow. And, and there are various theories to account for why that might be the case. One theory is cooler temperatures on Earth may foster germs that lead to pandemics, and then that's maybe part of why pandemics tend to fade in the summer when it gets warmer. But another theory is that Actually, viruses and stuff come down from space all the time that some of our hmm. diseases here on Earth are of extraterrestrial origin. And the shifting in the sunspot cycle affects the magnetic fields in outer space in a way that allows more of those to come down. Wow. So just some ideas to think about. <laughs> but there has been a reported correlation. And of course, Correlation is not causation, but there has been a reported correlation between solar minima and the outbreak of disease. This is not the alien invasion I thought it would be. <laughs> yeah. All right. Excellent. Those are great. Two great headlines. So, uh, folks, we, we always want to hear from you. So what is your 
theories about remote viewing. Now that you've heard uh, the the stories and the evidence, uh, let us know by visiting sqpn.com or the Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World Facebook page. You can send an email to mysterious at sqpn.com or send a tweet to at mys underscore world with the hashtag of Mysterious Feedback. Be sure to check out the Mysterious World bookstore at MysteriousWorldStore.com for links to all the books and videos that Jimmy mentions on the show. Uh, Jimmy, what's our next episode going to be about? Our next episode is going to be about acupuncture, and I don't want you getting sharp with me about this subject. Well, I'm going to have to needle you about this subject if we keep talking about it. <laughs> well, I don't know. We're going to have some incisive things to say, but as long as the listeners get the point, that'll be enough. Well, it might be a sticky situation. <laughs> we should stop now. <laughs> so you can find links to Jimmy's resources from our discussion and links to the mysterious headlines on our show notes at sqpn.com slash mysterious. And remember, to help us continue to produce the podcast, please visit sqpn.com slash give. Until next time, Jimmy Aiken, thank you for exploring with us our mysterious world. Thanks, Dom. And once again, I'm Dom Bettinelli. Thank you for listening to Jimmy Aiken's Mysterious World on StarQuest. <laughs> <laughs>